Well, I don't think there are visitors, but if there are, I'm Sam Barber, the associate pastor here. Our pastor's gone in Nigeria, as you just heard me pray. Um, so I'm preaching this morning, and we are returning back to Hebrews chapter 4, where we were a couple of weeks ago. Um, so if you haven't done so, I invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, we'll be in verses 14 through 16 this morning. And if you're using a church Bible, uh, you can find that on page 1003. A few weeks ago, we, we looked at verses 11 through 13, and so we're just um, in this kind of two-part series, we're closing it off with verses 14 through 16 today, and I've entitled the sermon uh, this morning, The Throne of Grace. Our key words for our worshipers in training are high priest, temptation, and grace. Uh, and I'm going to read uh, verses 11 through 16 for a fuller picture of where we are in the letter. Let's hear the word of the living God for us this morning. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And so Hebrews 4, uh, verses 11 through 13, uh, conclude a section of thought where the author uh, attempts and does so quite well to show Jesus' superiority over Moses in particular. Uh, I say in particular because the theme of the book up to this point uh, has been this demonstration of the greatness, the grandness, and the superiority of Jesus over um, various aspects of the Old Testament religious system in Israel. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, he demonstrates Jesus' superiority over the prophets and over angels. In chapter 3, as we mentioned last time, he's showing Jesus to be greater than Moses and even Joshua. And as we looked at those three verses, 11 through 13, last time what we said was that God's rest, the rest that He had promised Israel under the Old Covenant, still stands to us. The offer still stands to us despite the wilderness generation uh, and their having failed to reach this rest. Therefore, we must strive to enter it, because like them, um, it is, uh, we don't want to fall like them into the same sort of disobedience, that is, unbelief. We saw also that this um, striving is necessary because if we fall short of this promised rest, 
and we do not believe God, truly, we do not take Him at His word, then His word, His declaration that unbelievers will not enter His rest, it stands against us. This word is powerful. It will bring utter misery and ruin to all who stand in opposition to the Lord. And we saw further that God's word pierces us to the deepest part of our souls and exposes every evil thought and deed to his terrifying judgments. And so really, on the whole, we saw this text, this uh, section of Hebrews, chap- really chapter 3, verse 7 through 4. I'm sorry. Is this on? Okay. Pleading with his audience and with us, don't give up. Lest we fall short of the inheritance promised to those who persevere. And so now we come to verses 14 through 16, which serve as an introduction to the author's next train of thought. So he concludes one section and he begins another one. Um, in the same line of thought as what he's been doing as a whole, but now he's comparing Jesus to the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood under the Old Covenant. And these verses, compared with verses 11 through 13, are, they have a much different tone to them. Verses 11 through 13 are uh, words of warning, Verses 14 through 16 are words of encouragement. Uh, Martin Luther helpfully comments here on this. He says, the writer terrifies us and then he comforts us. And as we look at this passage this morning, there are just two things that I want us to notice. First, I want to consider our confession. And then secondly, our confidence. So first, our confession. We're told in verse 14 that we ought to hold fast to our confession. There are two reasons given in this passage as to why we must hold fast. One comes before the beginning of the verse, and the second comes after in verse 15. But before we consider these reasons, let's note what is it that we confess. The word in verse 14, confession, takes us back to chapter 3, verse 1. The author of the Hebrews writes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. He says also in chapter 2, verse 1, 
that he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. He goes on, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders in various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so I would argue that the message in chapter 2, verse 1, is synonymous with the confession being held in chapter 3, verses 1, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 14. In 2 1, they are to pay attention, much closer attention, to what they heard. And in verse 14 of chapter 4, they are to hold fast their confession. Well, what was it that they heard? What is their confession specifically? Most generally, we could say this it is the superiority of Jesus Christ over all that came before him. The message of salvation that has been brought fully and finally in Jesus Christ. It is none other than the very gospel of God itself. Simply put, the author to the Hebrews in urging them not to fall away from Christianity, to turn back to uh, some form of Judaism, he pleads with his audience to pay attention to the gospel which they heard and to which they must tightly cling. Throughout the book of Hebrews as a whole, he holds out for them the vicarious life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners as the message of hope to which they must cling for eternal life. And the same holds true for us. We must cling to the gospel of Christ. Where else will we find another substitute? Where else will we find one who can remove our sins from us? Where else will we find one willing to appear, one willing and able to appear before the throne of God on our behalf? We do not face the exact same temptation that these Israelites did, certainly, to revert back to the old way of Judaism. But nonetheless, do we not face a culture that despises Christ and his gospel? And so for us, the call most certainly remains to remain steadfast and immovable in our confession. And so, what, what is the ground? What is it that the writer here gives to us as the, the bedrock upon which we can rest our feet as we hold fast to this truth? Two things. First, he says, we are to hold fast our confession because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And this language calls us back to the duties of the high priest under the old covenant. Specifically, we can think of just the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, 
uh, will we read of the duties of the high priest to go into the holy of holies, the, the most holy place to make intercession for the people, to, to atone for their sins. Each year, one, one day, the high priest and only the high priest would enter in to the most holy place of the tabernacle or the temple where the glory of God was specifically manifested. There was a veil that separated the holiest place from the holy place. A veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Say that five times fast. It was made with cherubim skillfully woven into it. And this veil represented and it depicted heaven itself in which the innermost place of the temple lie is here that the Ark of the Covenant resided, covered with the mercy seat and the cherubim. This was where God gave His most remarkable displays of His presence in glory among Israel. And here, and only here, after making purification for Himself, the high priest would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat after these sacrifices that would serve as a pointer to the greater sacrifice needed in Christ for the people and he would come and atone for their sins. The, the problem, however, is that the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. And the high priest himself must make purification for his own sins time after time. And so the people of God need a better high priest. We need a better sacrifice. And so we have it. We have a great high priest who has not only one day, once a year, passed through the curtain of the temple which represented heaven and the barrier between God and man. We have a high priest who has passed into the very heavens themselves. He has torn the curtain of the temple in half. He has purged us from our sin and He has um, come always into the presence of God to make intercession for us. Well, who then is this great high priest? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our author says. Now, if you know anything about uh, the Old Testament laws, particularly those concerning the priesthood, you're probably aware that there is a significant problem to Jesus' claim as high priest. The problem is this. Jesus, as is very clearly expected in the Old Testament and is proven in the New, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. When the Aaronic priesthood, that is priesthood from Aaron, um, must come from the tribe of Levi. Uh, you see several references to this in Numbers 1 through 4. Um, if you want specific references, you can ask me later. But um, the priesthood must have come from the tribe of Levi. In fact, any other tribe who, who approached the sanctuary of the temple would die. Jesus then, there's a problem. If he says 
he's a high priest. And the author of Hebrews says this very clearly about him if he's from the tribe of Judah. We can't work out all the ins and outs of this issue because this is what he takes up here in this section on through about the end of chapter 10 of this book. But a few comments can be made. Indeed, as a member of the tribe of Judah, Jesus had absolutely no right or authority to be called a priest according to the Levitical priesthood. Thankfully, the Levitical priesthood is not the only legitimate priesthood that is recognized in the Old Testament. In Genesis 14, we meet a fairly obscure figure through the eyes of Abraham. The man Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and priest to God most high. It's Genesis 14, 18. And we can't work out all the intricacies of who this man is and exactly how his priesthood is legitimate, but in that passage, Abraham clearly recognizes him to be a legitimate priest because he offers him a tithe unto the Lord. And then in Psalm 110, verse 4, we see it affirmed that the Messiah is to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is crucial because remember, Jesus cannot serve as our high priest according to the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. He was not born in the tribe of Levi, but of Judah. He could and can and does, however, serve as our high priest according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. How? Well, the author of the Hebrews does answer this question at length. Um, and in chapter 7, he says, at one point, quoting Psalm 110.4 that I just referenced, he says, Christ arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, not on the basis of bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. M Melchizedek, you see in Genesis, is portrayed as a man with no beginning and no end. He's given no genealogy. He comes and he goes. He just seems to be. And so in like fashion, Jesus actually has no beginning and no end as the Son of God. And in his resurrected life, he has conquered death, hell, and the grave, proving once and for all that he has this indestructible life. And so having been sworn in as high priest according to the priesthood of Melchizedek, sworn in by God, he has become the guarantor and the guarantor of a better covenant. Better than the one mediated by the Aaronic priesthood. The priests under Aaron lived, they died, and then their office was given to another after them. Christ continues forever. He will never die. He has beaten death. And so because we have such a great high priest, one who has passed through the heavens, let us hold fast to this gospel. A second reason why we are told to hold fast to our confession is given to us in verse 15. Because not only is this high priest great and glorious, not only is he 
far above us, ascended into heaven. But he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We've been given one reason to hold fast to our confession. We have a a high priest who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And he has an indestructible life. And so he cannot fail in his task to intercede for us. But his inability to fail may not be that comforting to us if we have worry over his concern for us. What concern does this great and glorious high priest exalted above the heavens have for us? What of man's daily struggles does he know? Jesus, the Son of God, What consequence does his priesthood have for me? The writer anticipates these objections in verse 15 when he says Jesus is able to sympathize. This great high priest who resides in the heaven, yes, even him. How can it be? How can this this wondrous being sympathize with me? How can he know what it's really like? Because he was tempted in every way that we are. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, uh, we read that he himself has suffered when tempted, and so he is able to help those who are being tempted. He was made in the likeness of his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus is not far removed from your life like you might think. No, he suffered. He was tempted just like us. For this reason, he is able, one, to sympathize with you. He knows your struggle. And two, he's able to help you. He has been there, done that, and therefore he's able to offer you help along the way. Now, there is generally some objection that is raised at this point. How is it that Jesus was tempted in every way that I am? Think about the temptations we face today that you might could argue he knew nothing of. The internet did not exist when Jesus was around. Tempting meals at fast food restaurants didn't exist. Jesus never sat in traffic at the intersection of Interstate 95 and Highway 21 at 530 in the afternoon trying to get home. His parents loved him. He was never abused as a child. He never went through the temptation that I faced. He doesn't know the half of it, you might say. We could rattle on and on here. And while it's true that there are particular circumstances that we face and endure that Jesus did not, this does not therefore mean that Jesus is unacquainted with every kind of temptation that there is. And that he is unable to sympathize with you. Because remember, there is nothing new under the sun. Pornography was not so readily available 
then as it is in our day, but there has always been temptation to lust. I-95 hasn't always existed, but anger didn't come into existence only once the automobile was invented. Jesus' earthly parents loved him, but they were not perfect. Beyond that, he faced the complete and total rejection of his Father in heaven once he took our sins upon himself on the cross, severing the perfect relationship he had had with God, one that in all of his human life and in all of eternity past, he had never experienced the slightest lack of communion and harmony in. Jesus never married a woman during his earthly life, but he does have a bride that... It does not take us long when we read the scripture, when we search church history, or we look at our own hearts to see how this bride of Christ often treats him. And so Jesus says to the the struggling parent, struggling spouse, employee, the angry driver, the lustful person that he has been there. He knows what it's like to be tempted. The core of every temptation to exalt ourselves to places not our own has been faced. And we might add further this thought. When Jesus may not have faced certain particulars of temptation, but think of the strength of the temptation that he faced. Because the author says that he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so I have an analogy here that I don't remember where I got it, but I think it's generally useful. If, uh, if you were to break a toothpick, how much effort is required to do that? Not much. What if you tried to bend and break a steel bar? How much more force is required? A whole lot more. What's more, what about a steel bar that under no certain circumstances can be broken? How much could infinite force break a steel bar that cannot break? No. And so, when Satan tempts Jesus, while he doesn't have infinite strength by any means, how much strength, how much force do you think he applied upon the Son of God? My guess is that it was every ounce of power that he had. You and I would crumble under such a weight. But Jesus stood firm. And he did it so that he might be qualified as a merciful and faithful high priest on our behalf. Because he suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help us when we are tempted. The sinlessness of Jesus is crucial to the gospel message. 
It is his sinlessness, his perfect obedience to the law of God in his earthly life, despite the onslaught of temptation that the evil one constantly threw his way. It is his obedience that makes him an acceptable substitute for us. This is what theologians call his active obedience in contrast with his passive obedience in his suffering on the cross. Christ perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Every jot and tittle. No duty was omitted. No violation was committed. It is not simply an added bonus that Jesus is sinless. If he is not sinless, his life and his death mean nothing for us, They could accomplish nothing on our behalf. And so it is without reservation that we must hold fast to our confession because we have a great high priest who is seated in the heavens making intercession for us now. And that intercession is full of sympathy because he knows what it's like to be human. Well, secondly then, by way of our main points, we've looked at our confession and this great high priest that we must confess. And now secondly, our confidence we see in verse 16. In light of the two reasons that our author has given us for holding fast to our confidence or to our confession, he gives those same reasons as confidence, right? He says, let us then with confidence. So in light of what I've just said, let us with confidence then draw near to the throne of grace. What an amazing thought. I don't know about you, but when I think about thrones and kingdoms, current and in days past, I don't often think of situations where the people are given a free pass and they're invited and encouraged Come on in. Come on in to the throne room. I think often uh, in VBS this summer, we're doing Esther. I think of the story there where the king says, hey, if you come here and I don't extend the golden scepter to you, wham, you're done. Do not come anywhere near my throne room. That is to be expected. But we are told, come with confidence before your king. It's worth noting, though, what we mean by the word confidence. I think confidence is perhaps misunderstood a lot, maybe misused. First, um, we're not talking about casually strolling in to the presence of God as though he is our homeboy, as the t-shirt has often said. For instance, in Hebrews 12, 29, we read this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Another thing that we're not saying about confidence is that it's not... It's not a mere overly casual way, but it's, and it's not arrogant either. 
Confidence and arrogance aren't the same thing. We may mistake them one for another in each other, but it's not arrogance. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so what is confidence? It's not casually strolling in before God with arrogance and pride in our hearts. Confidence uh, synonyms for it might be something like boldness, courage, perhaps even candor. The idea in this text is that because Jesus is our mediator before God, we can go before Him, we can go to Him with confidence knowing that we will be accepted and our prayers will be answered for Christ's sake. We can have surety that God is pleased to answer our prayers according to His infinite wisdom and His infinite goodness. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We need not fear that we're asking for something. If we are asking for something according to the will of God and we are seeking His face, we don't need to be fearful of being rejected. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, we read this in verse 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from, every, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Are we, are we getting it? The point that is made here is that we no longer need to fear if we are in Christ, if He represents us to God. We do not fear that God will consume us. We don't, like the high priest in the Old Testament, need to wear a rope around our waist so that when we enter the most holy place, someone may drag us out of it if we are struck down dead on the spot. We don't need someone going in there for us either. Jesus the spotless Lamb of God has opened for us a new and living way. He has sent His Spirit into our hearts and we can confidently draw near to God on the basis of what Christ has done for us and what He still do does for us. And we can present ourselves and our needs before the Lord and know that He's pleased to answer us. Well, what particularly are we told that we may seek? What, for what purpose do we come to this throne of grace? Two things, mercy and grace. It is certainly plausible that there's no real difference intended here in the phrases that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Perhaps in the author's mind, those things are basically the same thing. He just is making a... Two different ways of saying the same thing. I do think it's possible though, that each of these phrases correspond to the two reasons given above as to why we should approach God with confidence. Receiving mercy then would correspond to the objective work of Christ done for us by which he grants us access to God. We see this in verse 14. We must receive mercy for our rebellion and our sins against God. And we can because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens 
And is there now and forevermore interceding for us after he's made atonement for our sins? But then secondly, we may find grace to help now in the time of need. And this is connected with the subjective work that Christ does in us by his spirit as he helps us along the way. And he can do this because he is well acquainted with our weaknesses. So then in verse 15. Either way, the point is certainly this. At the throne of grace, there is justifying and sanctifying grace found at the feet of Jesus Christ. So in conclusion then, I want to tie a few things together. Both from um, some of our considerations from verses 11-13 and than today, 14 through 16. So in light of both the promise of glory for those who endure and the threatenings of judgment for those who fall short, and in light of our, of our great high priest who has accomplished redemption for us and by his spirit applies that to his hearts, let us strive to enter the rest that he promises and let us hold fast to our confession the gospel of the kingdom of God, and let us make sure that we daily, hourly even, come before the throne of God for mercy and grace in the time of need. There are three commands in this passage, verses 11 through 16, together. Three imperatives to strive, to hold fast our confession, and to draw near to the throne of grace. It is very important that we, that we understand that the Christian life is not a passive one. It is of the utmost importance that we strive, that we hold fast. We may not think that we may ease our way into heaven through a life casually devoted to the things of God. If you are tempted to think that way, the book of Hebrews is a good book for you, as are all the others. I pray that we don't fall into the same sort of disobedience that the Israelites did. And when I consider my own weakness, that's a scary thought. But there is good news. Because while we must strive, while we must hold fast, while we must draw near, it is not ultimately my strength that accomplishes these things for me. It is not your striving, your holding fast, your drawing near that provide the basis upon which you are made right with God. There's a a hymn that uh, we will actually introduce sometime later in the year, and it's called He Will Hold Me Fast. Uh, it's on those CDs that we've given out for you guys to listen to so that we're better acquainted with the songs and introduce them. And I want to read you the first verse. The first verse of the song is like this. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold 
he must hold me fast. And so I want to leave you with this, with that. Indeed, we must cling ever closer to the Lord Jesus. But remember, it isn't your hold on him that is your surety and your salvation. It is his hold on you. Though we are charged with the necessity of drawing near, striving to enter his rest, holding fast our confession, it is his grace found in his throne that will bring us to his side. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would you would use it in our lives. And we recognize and confess the the weakness in preaching. We know our own shortcomings and Lord, we ask that you would uh, by your spirit take your word and any truth proclaimed here this morning and plant it deep within our hearts that it might bear much fruit. God, would you give us strength to strive, to hold fast, and to draw near. Help us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.